Man, welcome to Back on Track with your host, Troy Track Select. And I am so excited to see y'all again. What's up? What's up, dog? What's up, man? I ain't seen you in so long. I feel like I've been gone for a minute. Excited to come back. Glad to see everybody. Um, quick, 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 quick announcement uh, like I always do. Email me at troytrackselect at gmail.com. Uh, cash app dollar sign Troy track select because the bread is most important always comes first and uh, Twitter at at select Troy Instagram Troy track select now that that's out the way let me go ahead and move forward I'm real excited to talk to y'all this week because basketball is back just came through just past this past Tuesday just I mean just had the tip of last night and, uh, you know, one of the things that we're expecting to see, super excited about uh, some of the teams this year, Bucks, of course, uh, Phoenix Suns, Lakers, the Nets, um, everybody's, you know, certain players that people are looking out for, Damian Lillard, uh, we got the Miami Heat, forgot, sorry, so you got Jimmy Butler over there, you got Melo on the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, you got Zion, just a lot of people and players and teams that everybody's excited to see. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen, especially with different things like uh, Kyrie Irving dealing with the vaccine mandate of New York right now. And he playing around and is very much looking at uh, possibly leaving $200 million on the table because he's refusing to get vaccinated. And so it's, you know, storylines like that that have just kept the league so exciting for the last 75 years. Uh, quick, you know, in case you don't know, this year's the 75th year that the NBA has been in existence. And I don't know if they're counting the time that the league used to be called the ABA, which was the American Basketball Association, or at least I think that's what it was called. So I don't know if it's literally the namesake NBA or the amount of time that we've had you know, the um, this basketball in general in the U.S. be some type of professional sport. But we're expecting to see tons of things this year. You know, every time basketball season comes around, we're expecting to see some nice jumpers. We're expecting to see some nice three pointers. We're expecting to see uh, some nice handles, some some dunks, some high flying action. And the reason why it relates to what we're talking about this week is because one of the things that we're going to see like we see every year, especially when we're talking about players like Kyrie, and we're going to see some crossovers, some real hard, nasty, ankle-breaking crossovers. This is going to be some people looking embarrassed out there. And one of the most embarrassing things is to see a grown man fall because someone else did some sort of did a little quick step on you. Uh, and it don't matter where you are in any league, any level. If anyone sees you get even slightly crossed up because people love to gas up a situation, um, it's going to be it's going to be pretty darn exciting. And everybody's going to um, everybody's going to just shout out. Everybody's going to say, ah, and ooh, and all that. And you, you just got to deal with that. But the reason it relates to music <laughs> is because. You may know or you may not know, but we're going to be talking about crossovers in music this week. Uh, very excited about what I've got pulled up here, but you might be confused by crossover basketball, crossover music. 
I'll try my best to explain. So I looked up the definition of a crossover in music. You have something called a music crossover. And the definition online was a crossover is a term applied to musical works or performers who appeal to different types of audiences. This can be seen when a song appears on two or more of the record charts, which track differing music styles or genres. So just in case you're not aware, uh, the U.S. keeps tracks of keeps track of music and, and how well a song is doing through the Billboard Hot 100 top 100. So typically um, you have the Billboard Hot 100, which is just the kind of the most popular songs, regardless of genre. And then you have the Billboard country charts, the Billboard hip hop charts, the Billboard rock and roll charts in which in those specific genres, this is the top country song. This is the in the you know hip hop Billboard um, 100. This is the top hip hop song. And then if you get, you know, you do so well, you end up on the Billboard Hot 100 period where you're just the hottest song around regardless of genre, which is very hard to do. A lot of people try. A lot of people use all these different methods now because there's different ways to try to game the system, uh, especially with streaming, how it is now. And some people even use machines. So they'll just have computers and phones like factories set up just playing their song to try to get up to the hot 100. They'll um, do all sorts of stuff, re-release songs or have an album and kind of like Gordon was saying last week or G as y'all know him, my bad. Um, but some people will um, just have all these things playing or scar. They'll, they'll re-release an album uh, with like these remixes or whatever, these different versions of a song. And that way they can try to game the system. Some people have sold bundles with albums. So they'll sell, they'll sell a t-shirt and the t-shirt comes with an album you know, regardless of if you want it or not. But if you buy that T-shirt or that hoodie or whatever merchandise you get from them, it counts as an album sale because the album was packaged with the CD. Some people release double albums. And so then albums count as twice when you listen to them. That game has changed a little bit now because we're not buying albums anymore. But that was a thing. I think Outkast technically had like the highest selling uh, hip hop album because they sold Speaker Box and The Love Below, which is Andre on one side, Andre 3000 on one side. One album is his and the other album is just Big Boys. And those count as two albums. So that had some crazy number of sales at a point. And, you know, because of that, they were just a super high chart now, but that's, I don't want to get too deep into that. We're talking about crossovers. So sometimes you'll see, um, music crossover into different genres. So we'll have fusions. We'll get into it in the first, I'm just start off with my first song. Cause I'm so excited to talk about it. We're going to talk about a little group called Mary, Mary. And I don't know. Let's let's pretend you don't know who Mary Mary is. And if you don't know who Mary Mary is, don't tell me. Mary Mary is a gospel group or really a gospel duo of these two women who were like really big in kind of the early 2000s, maybe the mid 2000s, depending on what you're doing. And um, they were huge when I was a kid. 
But I don't know if Kirk Franklin may have overshadowed them. I mean, people knew of them, but Kirk Franklin was kind of a giant in this space. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. So Mary Mary are a gospel group. You know, that is what they are known for. That's what people know them as. However, like Kirk Franklin, they made secular sounding music. And so secular, if you're not in the gospel world like that, just means music that does not sound like the typical Christian sound. It sounds more like music of the world. So it could sound like rock, rap, R&B, whatever. It just doesn't sound like typical gospel is really all that means. And so one of the first songs I remember by um, Mary Mary, and I probably didn't know it was them at the time, was Shackles. And Shackles was a huge, huge hit for... Um, Mary Mary, because and this is when we get into the crossover space. So I remember distinctly hearing shackles on um, on the radio, but not just like just the radio. Like I would hear it on R&B and hip hop stations because I don't think we we definitely listen to gospel, but I don't think we really listen to it on the radio stations necessarily. We had CDs and stuff that doesn't matter. The reason it's so significant is because if you're hearing it on, you could hear Shackles on the hip hop and R&B station that doesn't play gospel, or at least definitely wouldn't like just during the week. They might play it on Sunday morning, and then we go back to regular scheduled programming. But to hear it like during the week is is huge because it's hard. Probably one of the more difficult genres to, to cross over. And let me explain that. So you're hearing it on the radio, Right. And I and I liked it. I didn't really like a lot of gospel when I was a kid. I was not a big gospel fan. Um, But but that I was like, oh, man, this is fun. Like, I want to dance. I want to, you know, I want to groove, whatever. Um, And it sounds great. And it wasn't just that one. They had a couple other songs. But um, this one in particular, Shackles, went 20 number 28 on the Hot 100. Which means it left the world of gospel and ended up charting on the Billboard Hot 100. And number 28 is pretty, pretty darn good. But this is where the crossover happens. So you have, um, it's obviously a gospel song. But then it's number 19 on the Dance Club's uh, Bill Hot Billboard 100. And it's something on the, it's also charting on the Hot R&B. So it's it's getting into all these other sectors of the world other than gospel. So now you have people who don't listen to gospel at all who are now listening to Shackles. And I don't know. I wasn't out in the club at the time, but Shackles might have been playing at the club. I don't know if people got down to it like that, but I know we most definitely did. And I didn't even realize it was a gospel song when I was a kid. We're talking, you know, I'm elementary aged um <clears throat> i had no idea because like i said i didn't like gospel i wasn't really listening to it like that if i could help it i listened to it when i was at church but that was it um 
And so I didn't even realize it. And I just hear this, you know, super funky, fun beat. And it doesn't matter. Um, And it's it sounds really good. They have shackles. They had walking. Next time that save me. They had um, Love Him Like I Do. Heaven. And God in me. The God in me was when I was older, so I was definitely very aware that it was a song they're using auto tune on there, and that was playing a lot on the hip hop and R&B stations. They play that in the middle of the night. And I don't know if it was, you know, played at the clubs and stuff. I doubt it. But it's even that one even hearing them say God in me kind of it kind of took me a while to recognize that it was a gospel song sort of because it was definitely straight up club. It was definitely using what was popular at the time. And um what happens is, you know, it doesn't sound like typical gospel to me. But then that starts to create this problem, which is, you know, how secular can gospel music be? Um, it, to me, it sounds like you could you could play this stuff at a cookout if you wanted to. And I'm for sure somebody's grandma, somebody uncle, oh, sorry, aunt or uncle is definitely playing this at the cookout all the time. And that's fine. But it's. Because it sounds like that, it's hard to imagine it being played in the church Um, because a lot of times churches or the church, right, just in the kind of spiritual sense of the word or group sense of the word, tends to buck back at, you know, newer ideas and newer sounding stuff. They like tradition. They are stuck in. We're going to sound like this. So people know that it's gospel. You can't do all that other stuff. And it's not like their lyrics said anything. Um, like provo- provocative or controversial. I mean, it was the lyrics were gospel lyrics, but just the style of music. A lot of times the church did not like that. And so, um, you know, And because the church is so stuck on kind of these traditional things of, oh, I want to only sound like gospel music that came out in the 60s and and back. um, It makes it hard for them to move forward and connect with the younger generation. So me, myself, I've been a part of or been a member of or at least attended many big churches and many small churches. And the, you know, one of the things every big church knows and every small church knows, one thing that keeps 
um, members there and, and attendance high is the music, the the congregation of music, all the the um, musicians. You know, you've got your organ player or piano player, your bass player, guitar player, drums. That's all pretty standard. Guitar players sometimes if smaller churches is hard to find, but you you get the point. Every church I've been to, that is a big deal because that's like the first half of the service for real is just you got praise and worship and you've got um, the praise team. And then you have the actual choir who will come in and sing after the praise team. And, you know, that gets led and that's a, I mean, they all sing three or four songs each. So you might hear like six songs at church, depending on where you're at. And, uh, you know, music is so big in the church, like some churches record albums that are then, you know, become a like actually played with a lot of different people, not just people around, you know, the block. These are like national um, albums that get moved around and, and charted in the Billboard 100 and all that kind of stuff. Like when I was I went to Chicago and I can't remember what the church was. But my dad took me and he told me he's like, yeah, they these people record albums that do well, like everybody knows about them. Um, so anybody who's from Chicago, you might know what, who I'm talking about, but sorry. And so um, but one thing, not just the, you know, making of music with these uh, churches, a big deal. It is the or the playing of music. It's like the show of music It's the actual production of music during the performance. So I see them put a lot of effort into everything that's going on. So some churches, you know, they'll have not just the musicians playing and and the choir singing all that they have lights going on they have people working the lights they have people who actually work the sound and are mixing it as we're all playing it um they have people with smoke machines like it is a actual show it's a concert every week it's put on every single week so it's the music is a huge deal they spent a lot of time my dad played in so many churches and so many bands and you know you rehearse you might rehearse multiple times a week, depending on who you are, some, um, you know, what kind of church you are. Some churches rehearse once a week, but it's a big deal. And you will go out to other churches and perform with the choir at other churches. So the, a lot of times, depending on how big your church is, um, how much effort they put into the music of the, of the church and how much effort and how large the church actually is in terms of how many people go are usually kind of correlated. Every large church I've been to has four things. A charismatic pastor or leader of some kind, a strong community that they all do social outings together and some they might go on trips, they might have different groups that, you know, ride bikes together, they do community service, whatever, some sort of social thing that keeps everybody together all the time outside of just coming to church on Sunday and you have Bible study and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you have a solid front office who deals with business things like planning, budget, scheduling, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have a strong music production. And if any of those things wane, the church suffers a bit, or at least doesn't live up to its fullest potential. And music is one of the 
I mean, it's it's a strong pillar. It's a large pillar. You ever I'll tell you like this. Go look at any mega church right now and see if you see any music that it does not sound good. And I'm not saying you're going to like every song, but um, the quality of it is the sound like the actual how well can you hear them? Are they in tune? Are they singing together? Every mega church you've ever seen has a very strong music presence. Um, and so a lot of times these churches and it's, it's been happening for years and years and these churches have a problem with keeping the youth in the church. A lot of times youth and we're talking people, you know, uh, mid one, middle school, middle school to college age. It's hard to keep them from leaving. And it's a host of reasons for why that is, but I'm not going to go into all of them. But one thing I will say is definitely the music that they play. Music changes all the time. It does not stay the same. But a lot of churches will play the same stuff that we've been playing since our grandparents were kids, you know. And so a lot of kids want to hear newer, fresher stuff like all kids do. They want to hear stuff like they hear on the radio. They want to be able to sing this at school um, and all that kind of stuff. And you can. You can sing all that, you know, the, the classic stuff, but a lot of them just aren't into it. And I was into some of it, but not all of it all the time. And so if you have stuff like Mary Mary was playing, you will have a much higher chance of keeping these kids in the church. And uh, isn't that what you want? You're messing up your own thing. A lot of people don't want to meet. You know, you always talk about come as you are, but they don't want to meet people where they at. And um so a lot of them refuse to adjust to the times because Mary Mary, their stuff isn't at least the big tracks that really charted and went to the dance, you know, uh, chart on dance charts and R&B charts. It's not typical acoustic instruments like, um, you know, typical piano, guitar, whatever. It's kind of 808s maybe and um and some synthesizers and you know at that point you almost need a dj in the church more so than a typical band and that's different that is way different and a lot of people that starts to get too close to the club atmosphere to to some people really don't like that but that's i mean that's what they mean they were doing look they had i put it like this they had a lot of people who would not have otherwise listened to gospel at any point in their lives put on some gospel. They put on some Mary Mary. I'm sure the kids were always asking people to play Mary Mary. And Kirk Franklin went through the same thing. Church bucked back. Well, I don't know if they really bucked against Mary Mary, but they definitely bucked against Kirk. And look at him. One of the biggest gospel artists of all time for the last 20, 20, 30 years. Kirk has been a huge inspirational gospel artist and he got that from making more modern sounds and making more secular sounding stuff rather than the rigid stuff we've seen in the church for the last forever. Um, and, you know, if you had, like I said, this stuff makes me want to dance like all the time. So if you had this stuff playing in the church and we were dancing and having fun, you have a way bigger chance of having people come come back younger people come back so you know if i was dancing every sunday 
may and you can dance now but you know i don't really know how to dance that stuff but i can dance to some mary mary if you played that maybe you know i dance more and i come back more often and i'm sure a lot of other people are kind of thinking the same thing and that's really how i feel about that so shout out to mary mary just opening some doors or at least continuing to uh show people to the gospel of people who want to hear it you know that's their whole thing so shout out to them Definitely expose some people to some um, to Jesus who otherwise would have had no interest or never heard it because you might not turn on the gospel station. But shout out to the next person I'm about to mention for real. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember Sean Paul? Do you remember Sean Paul? If you don't. You're probably too young to listen to this podcast, but it's whatever. You know, you're going to do what you want to do. I'm not going to tell you not to not to listen. Um, first off, let's let's just take a moment to listen to uh, a little bit of Sean Paul. Sean Paul came out with Get Busy. Now, Get Busy was a huge, huge, huge track. It wasn't just that one. He had Temperature. Give me the light. And Light Glue. Which is, you know, not as well known, but still big. Well, I don't really care what people say. I don't really watch what them want to do. Still, I got to stick to my girls like glue. And I might not play number two. Don't that make you want to do something? Now, when I was younger, I went to uh, this after school program called Aces. And Aces was just like. Well, for us, at least, it was literally in the same school. It was just in the gym, which is very funny. But um, they would watch your kids watch me after school until my parents got there around five, six, whatever time they could pick me up. And um, they used to have these dances every so often. And they were kind of like big dances. Like um, they had a DJ. And I remember the DJ used to have a projector where sometimes he would play music videos on the projector as we're all dancing, whatever we're dancing to. And it's the early 2000s. So, you know, it's hot. It's hot in the club right now. I mean, I was in Aces, right? We were obviously, okay, Aces, I'm in like elementary school. But I'm dancing hard. I mean, I enjoy myself. I haven't danced like that in quite some time. But that's due to a couple of reasons. Anyway, though. Um, and Sean Paul used to be one of the people that was coming on and get busy came on. It's a rap. And you know what? Even though a lot of times I had no idea what Sean Paul was saying. Nobody did at the time, not here in the, you know, in the States. Uh, but Sean Paul is this dude from Jamaica who comes out and drops a couple bangers on your head. And I remember asking, I was asking around for this podcast, like, kind of what people's opinions on Sean Paul was and uh, <laughs> and if they remember him. And I asked my aunt, who was 
in the club at this time. And so I was like, hey, you know, do you remember Sean Paul? And clearly very delighted. <laughs> um, she was like, yeah, yeah, I remember Sean Paul. Let me see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she, yeah, she asked me, you know, why, why would I ask that? And I was just saying, you know, I'm, I'm asking for my podcast. She's like, yeah, you know, um, I didn't know what he was saying because his accent was so thick. But she said, yeah, you know, his accent was thick when he first came out, but it's a whole lot easier to understand now. She said, just give me the light or give me the light was crazy. He said everyone would lose it when that shirt uh, song came on. And she said that they used to dance till they sweat You come back. You come in, you have your nice, she said, people get all cute and all that, and you would leave in a tank top. It's sweating, hot, and everybody was cool. Everybody was cool with it. Um, you know, and and literally you taking off all your clothes, and that's when I understood why Nelly had it's getting hot in here. So take off all your clothes. Um I thought it was a little a little freakier than that, and it probably is a little bit, but that's also part of it. It's like we just dancing so hard in this space. I mean, we, we gotta take some off from a pass out. And uh she you know, she asked me if we still danced. Like people with their, you know, tw- I'm I'm twenty three. She asked if we still danced, which was incredibly sad, but I can't even you know, I, I can't even get mad at her because I totally understand why she was saying that. Well, she said, do we still dance besides TikTok dances? And I forget that her son is like 15. So he's growing up in all this TikTok stuff. And uh, I feel like TikTok dances didn't really catch on like that for real until COVID hit. I'm sure they were doing it before, but that's definitely when it got huge because everybody started doing like all the challenges with every new song that came out. But she was like, you know, do you guys dance besides doing TikTok dances that make you look like a jackrabbit? And it took me a minute to understand what she meant, but I had to remember like some people, some people were really doing that. But um, no, yeah, we don't really dance a ton anymore. I unfortunately had to tell her that at least where I'm at, I'm sure different places it's, it's different, but um, I think part of it was music, at least in the, in the clubs that I was going to, so this is kind of clubs in North Carolina, wasn't, or in the South in general, wasn't really made to dance to. You know, if you're talking about traditional black clubs, a lot of times we're listening to, um, we're listening to trap music in the South. And so, you know, trap music, like, you might be able to twerk a little something, but it's not like, you know, trap music, we're talking about selling drugs and shooting people. Like, it's not really the same vibe. And the beats aren't aren't these kind of groovy beats that, that you're dancing to. It's a, it's a different vibe. So people kind of just stand around, maybe smoke a little hookah, pull your phone out, show everybody we had the club. We bought a bottle, a 300 bottle, um, $300 bottle of Henny. That was only worth, you know, $15 at the ABC store. We out here living. Uh, but unfortunately, no, it's, we don't really dance that much. I love dancing, though. I love being able to go out. And, you know, be with the homies and and dance. But it's it's changed. And, you know, that's fine. And they used to have songs where they specifically had directions of the song to like, yeah, dance or not even directions on how to dance. But like literally telling people this song is so funky, we should be dancing. 
and you know this stuff in the 70s but they still did that in the 2000s too early 2000s um but yeah one of them i love sean paul i love get busy i love temperature i love give me the light light glue amazing um one of the things that was the most frustrating about sean paul though was well at the time it was like i just didn't understand what you're saying i was like well whatever I'm, I'm just not getting it but then i realized years and years later that he's speaking patois and patois is a really frustrating language for me and um the reason is is because i was like i should be like there's definitely some english in there i should be getting it but i can't get it and that's why because patois is not english you know i thought it was and it's not it's just I thought it was like a thick accent. That's not true. Patois is not even language, really. It's by definition. Patois is a dialect of the common people of a region differing in various respects from the standard language of the rest of the country. And so, you know, you hear Jamaican people speaking Patois like it's not it's not regular English. You're not going to get it if you didn't grow up in that. And I just had to accept that. And I didn't accept that till I got to what my third, fourth year of college. Um, but you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, Sean, Sean Paul is great at the parties is great at house parties. That's where I really always had the most fun because I guess it wasn't so much pressure on everybody. Everybody kind of knew each other and was way more open to dancing then at the club, at the club, some of y'all be dead. And I'm tired of standing in the line for two hours to get inside and find out it's nobody in here. Everybody's supposed to be in the club outside waiting in the cold because it'd be wintertime when you get to school and y'all got us out here and y'all got us. It's a doggone. It's a lingerie theme night or pajama night. And we out here in this thin stuff playing with you. Next bouncer I see. I ain't going to see no bouncers. I ain't going to say all that. But yeah, just just ridiculous. But shout out to Sean Paul. He actually made a statement talking about Patois and how it made it difficult for global audiences to understand Jamaican music. And unfortunately, it was misinterpreted as Patois is holding us back, which is not what he was trying to say. And some people you know, took it like that. That's not what he's trying to say. He's literally just trying to say, you know, it's a language that's only spoken, or at least the patois of English. So Jamaican patois, even though they say it's got closer um, links to um, other language, Creole, other languages rather than um, than English. But whatever. Uh, you're talking about a nation that's. I mean, it's a few million people. Jamaica is a small island. And so the only other people going to it's going to be a very small number of people outside of Jamaica who are going to be able to understand Patois. But, you know, not many knew it. And because of that, it's going to be hard to break out of that. If that's what you're if that's the type of music you're making with a lot of Patois, like Sean Paul was doing. His first stuff was heavy on the Patois and not many people knew what he was saying, but it didn't matter because the music was good and he made it work and now we live in a world where k-pop is a thing where you can be in 
you know, we li- I live in the United States and people, a large amount of people listen to K-pop here where they're speaking Korean, another country that's not that big. <laughs> um, but the K-pop is a global thing now. And most people who listen to it, I imagine, probably don't speak Korean. So, you know, the first K-pop I saw, excuse me, first K-pop song I ever heard was Gangnam Style when I was in high school. And everybody was doing a little dance. And then he uh, had a song with Snoop Dogg called Hangover. And, you know, that that got some traction, too. But Gagnon Style was so big. It was like the first video on YouTube to get a billion listens or a billion views. Like, that had literally never been done before. I don't know. It probably has been done since, but not by too many people. For a single song, a single song. We're not talking about an album, not talking about a list of songs, but a single song where he was, I think he was speaking in that, um, speaking in English in parts of the song, but I think that a majority of it was in Korean. So anyway, and now you have BTS, another huge global group that a lot of people listen to. They've been on American, you know, late night shows performing. And they don't, they speak English in some of their stuff, but a lot of it is also in Korean. And stuff like that is not possible without artists like Sean Paul leading the way. It just isn't. It doesn't happen. So shout out to Sean Paul opening up a lane for other artists to break into the American market by coming here and speaking, you know, Language that we, or at least a version of our language that most of us don't even really understand, but we didn't care because the song was just that good. So shout out to Breaking Barriers. Uh, And, you know, his his crossover from kind of coming from a reggae, not reggae, dance hall um, point of view to the U.S. We don't really rock with, or not the U.S., but we don't really rock with a dance hall like that because of, of the Patois for real. And it's just a different style. It's not not really ours. Okay. Next thing I want to talk about. Let's talk about two artists that we don't really put together very often ever. Linkin Park and Jay-Z. Now, this is the type of crossover that I really want to talk about. This is really... The type of crossover that um, that inspired this whole conversation we're even having right now. Linkin Park and Jay-Z. I feel like there are a couple different types of crossovers, right? There is um, an artist appeals to music genres by themselves due to their sound becoming more accessible, right? So you might have some, for example, Taylor Swift, who is originally just considered a country star to now she's kind of considered a pop star because her sound has become more accessible. It's not straight up country. It's kind of melding some pop elements in there. And so now a lot of people who maybe wouldn't have listened to some more hardcore country like, I don't know, Johnny Cash or, um, Willie Nelson, but they will listen to Taylor Swift because she is a country artist, but it's not so deep in there. It's not as eccentric. It's not as different. It's it's more accessible, right? It's, it's closer to things that they've heard before. 
Um, I think you have another type of crossover where it's two artists from the same genre, but they have different they have different audiences when they come together. So I don't know, maybe you're talking about an example in rap, uh, Snoop Dogg and Jay-Z being on the same track. Right. In the 90s, there was the huge East Coast versus West Coast beef. So having, you know, Snoop, a legend in California, legend in um, and then Jay-Z, a legend in Brooklyn, that's a big deal. A better example, because it's actually real, Jay-Z and Pimp C and Bun B. That was the, you know, North and the South is still a big thing even now. So to have those two stars, you know, Houston and Brooklyn come together was a huge deal. But then you have the third type of crossover, which is what this one is between Lincoln Park and Jay-Z. Um, two or more artists from different genres who come together and make a fusion. So you've got Lincoln Park, you know, rock, punk, new metal, more so. And then you have Jay-Z, hardcore rapper from the 90s. You know, who would have thought the crack dealer turned billionaire would ever be caught hanging out with the depressed rock stars who have some uh, self-esteem issues would be hanging out ever. But, you know, really, it's not super far fetched because you've got two groups who are both loud, both considered rebellious both kind of shunned for whatever different reasons that they're shunned um and low-key you know in lincoln park the uh the the lead beside chester um, bennington is is rapping most of the time anyway which i kind of forgot that that was a thing so it's not the most crazy thing that would ever happen however it's still two different audiences people who are listening to Jay-Z were not listening to Linkin Park and like people who listen to Linkin Park were not listening to Jay-Z for the most part. There was very little crossover there. Um, and I think, you know, the story of how these two came together is important and it's a big deal. Uh, so they end up making a, uh, they wanted to, perform for MTV. MTV used to have a show called MTV Mashups, which didn't air in the US apparently. It only aired in um it only aired in Europe. So maybe even just the UK, but I'm I'm not hundred percent sure on that. Anyway, it starts with neither of these two artists. It really starts with Danger Mouse, which was a producer who I kind of remember most for working with um CeeLo Green, they had a group called Gnarls Barkley, whatever. So uh, he matches up Jay-Z's The Black Album with The Beatles, The White Album, White Album, and called it The Gray Album. And it quickly becomes this huge underground hit. And um, he becomes a huge you know, producer and rapper because of this strange mashup. So MTV sees this and says, oh, man, we need to do something like that. So they grab Jay-Z and um, they like, yo, we want you to do a match with somebody. Who do you want to work with? And he says, Lincoln Park out of 
anybody. And so they, they reach out his Jay-Z's people reach out to Lincoln Park and they say, hey, we want to work with you guys. And they're super excited. And um, one of the, the lead vocalists, Mike Shinoda, heard that he wants to do this mashup project and he's super excited. And so he starts really working on it because he really got his bread and butter over doing mashups in the early 90s. So they don't really work together till 2007, but he's been doing mashups and stuff since the early 90s. That's kind of how he learned how to do anything um, musically. So he makes all these mashups together between Jay-Z and Linkin Park on his own laptop and computer. They reach out to Jay-Z and said, hey, let's just make a whole EP together, like six songs or something like that. And um, they wanted to make something great. And they did. They came together and made something. They wanted to make it so that basically MTV couldn't say no. And so they made out they made something called um, Collision Course and Collision Course comes out in 2004. And it's got four songs from Linkin Park. And sorry, it's, it's got a bunch of songs from Linkin Park and a bunch of songs from Jay-Z. And they just mix them together. And uh, I highly suggest that you listen to it. But they end up the, the, the biggest song from it was a mashup between Numb from Linkin Park and Jay-Z's Encore. So they mash up this song. It's the biggest one. And they actually end up doing a show off of it. Now, the whole reason they really did the EP was because they had the intention on doing the live show. And they actually had a concert, which was a huge deal. Uh, and the reason they recorded them first instead of just doing it live is because you never, you know, kind of paraphrasing from Jay-Z, but he's like, you don't know, and Mike Shinoda, you don't know the potential of the song until you hear the greatest version of the song and the highest quality that you can possibly hear it. And the only reason they could do that, only way they could do that is if they actually record it in the studio. So they did that and they end up winning a Grammy from the single Numb and Encore, which I remember hearing um, on the radio. And I didn't know it was a mashup because I just didn't. And I was like, yo, that's Jay-Z on a, on a Linkin Park song. All right, whatever. So they end up winning a Grammy for this for, uh, I think it was under the category best rap song slash song collaboration at the 2006 Grammy Awards. And so they're performing it. And, um, they mix it with Numb Encore and uh, what's his name? John. I'm sorry, Paul McCartney's Yesterday or really the Beatles yesterday, but Paul McCartney's Yesterday and they perform it at the Grammys. And, you know, they're just doing the thing between Jay-Z and Linkin Park, which is already insane that that's happening. But then Paul McCartney comes after you know, out of nowhere and actually starts singing yesterday with them as Jay-Z's doing the background vocals and stuff. And you got to realize some of the insane stuff that's being mixed here because, you know, I played, I think, Numb and Encore and the first line that I hear over Linkin Park's guitars is Encore. Do you want more cooking raw with the Brooklyn boy? What? 
We're talking about selling crack. It's just it's just two audiences you never really thought would mesh together. And it was great to see it, you know, and, and then on the Grammy performance with Numb and Encore. And yesterday, the Beatles, you have Paul McCartney up here. And Jay-Z's out here saying, when I come back like Jordan wearing the 4-5, it ain't to play games with you. It's to aim at you, probably maim you. I, it don't it don't get too much harder than that. Listen to the album. I mean, it, it's worth it. It's really, really good. Uh, and it was just an insane crossover that we never thought we'd see. It's not the first rap rock crossover we've ever seen. The first... The earliest one that I remember is, um, well, I guess I don't technically remember it, right? But it was Walk This Way with Run DMC and Van Halen, which, um, you know, comes out in the 80s. You know what I'm saying? When rap kind of first starts getting huge. Sorry. That was disrespectful. Run DMC and Aerosmith. I knew that sounded wrong. Run DMC and Aerosmith. And, you know, that might be the kind of the first huge one. And they had, I think, some with um, either Slayer or Pantera. And, uh, oh, man, this is going to bother me. But it, it's fine. It uh, That might be the first one or the kind of the first huge one. But... This was one where I was alive to see it, so I wanted to include it on this list, and I thought it was super, super dope. Please check it out. Okay, next track on here is we have Gwen Stefani with Holla Back Girl, or Holla Back Girl. Let's just take a minute, listen to Holla Back Girl real quick for me. First off, did you hear that? <laughs> um, that was a <clears throat> massive hit when I was a kid. And, you know, I feel like it's responsible and easy to say. The reason this song is a hit is because of Pharrell. Uh, the beat is, I feel, a bit of a callback to Clips Grinding, which came out in 02. Uh, and then Hollaback came out. Hollaback Girl came out in 04. It's a super, it's not much going on the beat. It's not a very complex beat. It's, but it is masterful. It, if I give this beat to any one of you, you don't do what Pharrell and Gwen Stefani did on this song. You just don't do it. And it's, uh, you wouldn't most people wouldn't know what to do with it or how to even float on top of it but that's hey that's fine you know pharrell was in the marching band and i kind of get the the vibe that that was definitely part of his inspiration for this song there's kind of some horns coming in during the refrain or the chorus um that you can hear and then it's kind of sounds like a high school cheer almost like it really does sound like a marching band type thing and honestly, um, there's a reason for that. 
there is a reason for that in the story of this song. Um, you know, Gwen Stefani was having a little bit of beef. It says, uh, it was released as a third single from her album, uh, love angel music, baby. And those are all four words, but she said, you know, she heard uh, a comment from Courtney love that she made in an album called, I'm sorry, a magazine called 17 says being famous is just like being in high school, but I'm not interested in being the cheerleader. I'm not interested in being Gwen Stefani. She's the cheerleader and I'm out in the smoker's shed. And apparently Gwen had already had a history with Courtney. Uh, Courtney made it pretty obvious that she had a relationship of some sort with Gwen's husband. Um, and Lamb needed an attitude track. So Gwen took the cheerleader comment to heart and made a bass heavy high school diss track dressed as a cheerleader. And she says, you know, I think it was the perfect song to achieve what I wanted to do musically. It made sense that it was with Pharrell because he was the first person who I worked with outside of No Doubt for Hella Good, which I think was an album that she had or a song she had earlier. She was being bullied by, she said she was being bullied by someone and was being called a cheerleader, which was a bad thing. Growing up, that was not cool. I thought I was the opposite of that. I told Pharrell we should write a song about that. And he had this little keyboard that he writes everything on. He programs stuff into it. And he showed her the beat and said, yeah, this is the one. And, um, you know, we were talking about, she says, we were talking about different cheers. We remembered from high school. Then he goes, I'm going to leave and made her write the song by herself. And when he came back, they knew it was magic. So, and I was thinking that when I heard it, I was thinking, I was like, this sounds a lot like a high school cheer. Like, uh, you know, you hear the kind of booms and the claps and they literally, she literally starts the song off with everybody stomp your feet like this. And, um, this seems like the perfect song for beef for all girls between the age of four to like 23. It always seemed kind of like this school girls problem where we got problems with each other. I don't like you. I heard you was saying something behind my back. Now I got to do something about that you know heard first line on it was or first line from the first verse is heard that you were talking and you didn't think that i would hear it that is such a schoolyard thing to say like we can really settle this outside i heard you saying i heard you was talking about me we gonna settle something about it and then you know even the portions where on the refrain was like "Ooh, this my shit this my shit different a different time um this song is literally the reason i can spell the word bananas i did not know how to spell bananas when i was a kid forever and even now i if i have to use the word banana for some reason in written form i definitely still have to go through the this song is bananas b-a-n-a-n-a-s like i i have to do that I usually I used to put two ends next to each other. Either way, shout out to Gwen Stefani. She's for the kids. She's teaching us how to write. Um, but yeah, this song definitely came out in a time early 2000s. And I remember hearing it on the radio. Um, and I was not a fan of Gwen Stefani. She wasn't somebody I was just listening to at the time. I was super into rap and stuff. But, you know, it. I didn't really hear it on my own accord. Um I heard it because I used to ride. I used to go to this uh, 
daycare, summer, you know, program, after school program called, I think it was called Huddies. And this is when I was a little kid, still elementary type age. And we used to ride around in this cargo van. You remember those? I don't know if, you know, grown, when you're grown, you really have to ride those too often. But we're talking about like passenger vans that carry like, I don't know, nine people in the back, you know. You got the three bench seats and, and you sit in there and they would be playing the radio and they played whatever the station was that played like everything. Um, really everything except rap for real, which I thought was kind of weird. They had those stations that just played all the pop hits, all the rock stuff, all the uh, well, yeah, I guess it would be like rock, pop, pop, punk. That kind of stuff, but wasn't really hearing rapper R&B like that. It was a very strange specific radio station but either way that's the reason you know i know this song and kind of songs like big green tractor 1985 by bowling for soup stacy's mom buttons by the pussycat dolls you know that you hang out with different people and you see stuff that you probably wouldn't see on your own but yeah, it was a kind of a weird um, daycare place. Not weird because a lot of y'all probably have this experience, but you ever like been to a daycare where it wasn't like a, a real building? It was really just somebody's house, you know? That was kind of what it was. It was like a front room with a TV. And I remember seeing this music video over there. And even in the music video, you'll see um, like she's in a cheerleader's outfit. They are literally with a marching band, like all the things that the song um, kind of or the music video talks about is very well communicated through the song. You will hear the horns on the chorus. You will uh, you hear the cheerleading kind of chants that they're throwing around, making each other, you know, this. You know, is bananas B A N A N A S. This is bananas B. You hear that? So it really did a great job on that. And I, you know, I really think it's kind of a crossover because it's Pharrell who was hanging out with Clips, Pusha T, and Malice and Birdman. And you know, he's one of those guys who's who's everywhere. He fits in with whoever he wants to fit in with. Um, so you hang out with them. But then also able to hang out with people like Gwen Stefani and um, Britney Spears and whoever needed a hit. I think he also did some stuff with NSYNC. He, anybody who wanted to hit, Neptunes, and Chad Hugo, and Pharrell were ready to give it to him. Then he had his own music stuff. So shout out to Pharrell. Really crossing boundaries with this one because this is hard. I can play this right now and it still bumps. In a whip, and this came out 2000. I don't even know, very early 2000s. That's all I know. Um, but yeah, shout out to the crossover that is Pharrell 2005, very long time ago. We're talking about 16 years ago, and it still sounds great, anyway. Okay. For this next one, I'm going to try my hardest not to talk about the album 
because I want to save that for a later podcast episode. I will talk as much as I can just about the song. So we're going to talk about Justin Timberlake and Timberland with Sexy Back. I'm bringing Sexy Back. Yeah. Them other boys don't know how to act. Yeah. I think it's special what's behind your back. Yeah. So I'm turning around and I'll pick up the slack. Yeah. Take him to the bridge. First line of the song is I'm bringing sexy back. Where has it been? Where did it go? What? It doesn't matter. It's back now. And it's because of me. I started the trend. That is what Justin Timberlake is saying when he first comes back from a from quite a hiatus. Um, Quick little review in case you don't know. Justin Timberlake is at this point in time he used to be you know one of the one of the singers on he was part of NSYNC one of the biggest boy band groups in the world at the time and I'm not sure if they still do boy bands I don't really hear much about them of course now I'm a grown man um but maybe those well I mean BTS is literally a boy band so never mind anyway NSYNC Justin says, you know what? I can I can be solo. I'm going to go off by myself. Puts out a first album with Pharrell. Then comes back four years later after his first album and puts out Sexy Back as the leading single. That's the lead single. It is a strong statement to make. You know, he's grown. He's grown now. But anyway, four years is a long time. And uh, he told people, he says, this is going to sound different. It's not going to be the same. And, um, you know, pretty quiet, probably no singles during that time or anything like that. But he he comes out with sexy back and it's a statement. He's literally, you know, he's grown now. He's got stubble on his face. (laughs) He's 25 at the time. And in that first line, I'm bringing sexy back is crazy and the beat is crazy it's cold there's a you know woman in the background seductively just saying yes um and the beat is just all four on the floor it's cold and professional but that's because we're down we're here to get down to business we're not playing around we're bringing sexy back we got to do something now and you know why this song is this it's a different feeling it's i first of all this song is super funky uh i really need you to listen to it have you ever this song's made for this experience have you ever looked at somebody from across the club and like locked eyes with them and you kind of don't break that contact and then you you dance over there to them and they dance they come over dancing to you until you get together and you're and you're literally physically touching and dancing on each other. That is what sexy back is about. Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy, you know, and I and I you haven't lived until that has happened to you. I remember it was at my prom, actually. 
so years and years ago, but I remember um, there was this woman across girl at this time because we're in high school. Ain't nobody a woman in high school, but there was a girl across the room and I knew her. I'm not going to say her name, but I do remember I had a little bit of a thing for for a homegirl. And, you know, I remember we saw each other and we were friends, but we saw each other from the other side and just I started hitting you know, hit my little two step and she starts walking over and I kind of walk over until we came together and she actually starts dancing on me and stuff. That's what sexy back is about. And Timberland is just a mu- just as much a part of this song as Justin is. First of all, this song does not, it doesn't happen without Timberland. I mean, it literally says sexy back featuring Timberland. So, or Timberland. So, um, but he makes the beat in in the weird way that Timbo makes beats. You know, it's it's never kind of straight up with Timberland. It's always a little off kilter, always a little different. Um, it's kind of cold. It's got a lot of space and that space is there so you can get next to somebody. <laughs> but he's in the background, just kind of popping in with these little ad libs yelling. Yeah. You know, giving directions. Talk about get your sexy on, get your sexy on. And all all this stuff, he's telling you what to do. And Justin is just kind of singing over it. Um, this is really Justin's um, intro to the black audience. This is really when people start listening to just black people specifically start listening to Justin Timberland. I don't, you know, instinct, cool. I think his first album was called Justified maybe a little bit but this one and admittedly it's probably for some other songs on this uh, album more so like um, I think it's the end of time now I gotta look at it I think it's the end of time not 100% sure but he got a song with uh, Beyonce but um, he He's got a song with Beyonce on here. Yeah, Until the End of Time. And that I remember that was on the R&B charts. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about Sexy Back. Um, but yeah, this is really the entrance for JT into the kind of where black people for real start listening to him. It was definitely the first time that I started listening to him. I definitely didn't listen to any NSYNC before that uh, or Justified. This was kind of my first time listening to him. And this is in 2006. So whatever, but yeah. And, and this is definitely different because he's not doing all that dance and stuff, you know, no, there's no in sync dances on this one. This is straight up grown man, just, uh, Justin Timberlake at this point. And he is, um, in the music video, he's not, like I said, we're not doing all that dancing here. He does still dance at certain points, but not in this, not in this song. He is, uh, he's like a, in the music video, he's like this kind of Bond-esque super spy, 007 looking guy, you know, jumping in and out of windows and sneaking around this party. And he kind of seduces this, this woman at some certain point and all the kind of, all this espionage, but it's definitely a different take in the album cover. He's stomping on a disco ball in a suit. It was different and the song is amazing and you need to check it out because it's one of the greatest crossovers all time. 
Timberland, again, like Pharrell, is kind of one of those people who kind of brings a lot of people together and a lot of different sounds. And this is super funky because it's Timberland. And, you know, Justin Timberlake is lucky that he had somebody so interested in him and they brought this out of him. Justin Timberlake does not do this on his own. This is as much a success for Timberland as it is Justin Timberlake because he produces you know, most of the album, if not all of it. So shout out to Timbo. Shout out to Justin. Okay. Now let's talk about really the biggest uh, crossover of all time. Kind of without a doubt. And it's Last but not the least, Lil Nas X with Old Town Road. I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. Uh, I mean, I'm sure. You haven't forgot about Old Town Road. It literally just happened. It's only been two years since it came out. However, it is a different world that we're living now. COVID didn't exist yet, or at least it wasn't like it was now. Um, if you don't already know, which you probably do, because it was a big deal. At least it was big to me. Uh, Lil Nas X puts out Old Town Road and it ends up becoming the longest number one charting song of all time at 19 weeks before them before then it was i think a song by mariah carey and boys to men um and i don't remember what the song was but i think that one was for like 15 weeks maybe but it's a huge deal because it's the first time that a country song gets global it's very hard for country to get, um, first of all, just to break out of the country wreck, you know, the country billboard, but to get into the number one billboard and then the world is listening to a country song. Oh, what's that hater? You said it's not a country song. OK. All right. Fine. Uh, you're right. Billboard at a certain point decides it's not a country song. But let's let's we'll get to that in a moment. Um, first off, the power of the meme is undeniable. And I've mentioned that on several episodes before, and it's going to keep coming back because we live in the internet. Now we live in the internet age, and that is just, uh, the world that we live in right now. So the meme or jokes, whatever internet jokes is the reason that the song becomes what it is. Uh, Lil Nas X, and this is kind of where the story starts. Lil Nas X decides to cash in on the Yeehaw agenda, which in order for you to even understand what that means, I kind of have to go into the world's Twitter and explain how layered some of these jokes get. But it's kind of this play on words between um, the the gay agenda, which everybody's heard that. You've just heard, you know, the news whenever they were talking about um, people of the LGBT community community trying to get married or more so 
you know, gay and lesbian couples trying to get married, it was always the they called that the gay agenda. Like they just had this huge evil plot. And even now people are really concerned about, I don't know, like gay people converting children to become gay, which that's not how that works. But some people are convinced that gay people are out to get them, but whatever. So the yeehaw agenda kind of is a is a joke on the gay agenda, which then kind of turned into the the black agenda. But they didn't say black. And only black people said this joke. They they said the inward agenda. And then that goes into the yeehaw agenda, which is where a lot of black artists started playing around with the cowboy aesthetic. Uh, and you saw several people wearing, you know, these these uh, cowboy hats and chaps and Wrangler shirts and jeans and cowboy boots and big belt uh, belt buckles. But you see, you know, Megan the Stallion, Travis Scott, the baby, Solange, Doja Cat, Beyonce, Cardi B, Tory Lanez, a whole host of people who are kind of touching on this. I don't, I don't really know exactly where it came from, but they all just start wearing cowboy stuff in their music videos and pictures they take, you know, kind of as a not really as a joke, but they're some of them as a joke, some of them wearing it just because whatever. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, it, it kind of makes sense. Like black people mainly kind of come from the South and there's a huge cowboy culture in the South. The first black, excuse me, the first cowboys were black. I mean, these are the people who are working the fields and you got to wear that stuff to to protect yourself. And that's, you You know, you don't just wear that stuff because it's fun. You wear it because you're out working the fields and stuff. You can't have thorn bushes and wire and whatever else scratching your legs up and your arms up. So you, you got to wear that stuff and cowboy hats protect you from the shade and all, all sorts of stuff. It's just a good thing to wear when you're out there. I definitely wear the stuff myself, to be honest. Anyway, so you have all these black artists jumping in on this kind of cowboy craze together they're all wearing it and on tiktok and twitter they call this the yeehaw agenda and so lil nas x puts out this song called um old town road which is kind of this mix of trap drums and twangy guitar and lyrics talking about riding horses and um and wearing all that cowboy memorabilia uh and doing cowboy stuff it comes out and you know the people on tiktok are making these videos to it where they kind of dance to it when the beat drops they change into all their cowboy clothing and it gets big on twitter and people are making jokes and it's, it's but it's blowing up regardless and it's getting all these plays and it's getting all these clicks and there's all this attention and you know Lil Nas X is this unknown guy at the time nobody knows who he is and so it blows up due to all these jokes um but it blows up so much that it starts to chart on the hip-hop and r&b chart and the country charts and the hot 100 and so you know about a week afterwards though the billboard removes the song from the you know, country hot 100 for whatever reason that they kind of make up. So, you know, they, they, Lil Nas X puts out this mashup between hip hop and 
and country. And it becomes this question of, well, what is a country song after Lil Nas X, excuse me, after the Billboard committee or whatever decides to remove it. And, you know, they claim that uh, it doesn't exhibit enough elements of modern country to warrant it being a country song. And it it kind of starts this difficult conversation of, well, why, why is that? Because there are a lot of other country songs that are also using trap beats and 808s and sound basically the same as Lil Nas X. The only difference is Lil Nas X happens to be this black kid from Atlanta, Georgia, and these other artists are not. And it's not a good look when you're removing, you know, one of the very few black people who have ever charted on a country chart. And in the end, it becomes this talk about huge talk about race. And, you know, reality is it was just a racist move from a genre that has been very big on gatekeeping it and deciding who is and is not country. Uh, And, you know, Billboard has to answer for that. And they don't, you know, life goes on. Nothing changes. But Lil Nas X says, well, I don't really care about none of that anyway. He employs. Well, let me stop. The song is still getting bigger. It's still charting. And maybe it's starting to, you know, peak a little bit. And so Lil Nas X says, well, guess what? I'm going to call on Billy Ray Cyrus, Mr. Achy Breaky Heart, otherwise known as Hannah Montana Daddy, a.k.a. Miley Cyrus Father, a.k.a. Country Legend. And uh, Billy Ray Cyrus jumps on the remix of Old Town Road and drops one of the hottest verses of 2019 on a country song. It's very good. And, um, you know, it's like, well, is it country now? We, you know, it was already kind of based in country. I'm talking about cowboy stuff. It's got a guitar on it, twangy guitar. It's got a country legend on there co-signing me. But no. It's not enough. It doesn't go back in the country chart. They pretty much made up their mind and it's not going to go on there. But guess what? It doesn't matter because the song ends up blowing up so much so that it ends up going number one for the longest time in history. 19 weeks. Nobody has ever been able to top that because it literally just happened. And we'll, who knows when we'll see something like that again. Um, but it it goes to number one, not just because of how catchy the song is and how many people are, you know, into it or whatever. It goes number one because uh, Lil Nas X is kind of a genius and figures out, oh, I can just remix this song a bunch of times with different artists and just get these huge collaborations and they'll keep playing it because if it's a remix, it's still the same song. So it keeps charting. And that way I'll stay number one. So he gets there's four official versions of it. Um, but you know, any, everybody's remixed it with whoever they want to remix it. So you have the original where it's just Lil Nas X. You have the first remix where it is Billy Ray Cyrus, which is kind of the, the song that most people listen to and, and know you have the third remix, which is with Mason Ramsey, which was the Walmart yodeling kid, which a lot of people probably forgot about by this point. It was just a a video on Walmart where he was singing, uh, I think like some Hank Williams or something. He's got like the honky tonk blues or something like that. And, uh, and 
you know, Billy Ray Cyrus is on. It's the same verse that Billy Ray Cyrus already had. And Young Thug, of all people. And then he remixes it with BTS, global pop sensation, and uh, RM. And, you know, it's this huge song. And I honestly, I think the biggest deal here is that a country song went global. And that just doesn't happen like that. Um, it, you know, the last time before, last time a country song went number one before Lil Nas X is in 2012. So from 2019, 2012, country song does not go number one on the Hot 100 chart. Taylor Swift with We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, which is, you know, Taylor Swift is a pop star at this point. She started off in pop, excuse me, started off in country, but really is a pop star at this point. But because you kind of started in country and we've got a guitar, they're considering it country. I mean, you know, it, it's whatever. But if that is country, in all honesty, Lil Nas X is closer to country in my opinion. But again, this is all an opinion-based thing. And race is hard. You know, racism is hard to deal with. That's just what it is. So we all know what Taylor Swift looked like and we know what Lil Nas X looks like. Anyway, though, um, the song before Taylor Swift's song charts is Lone Star's Amazed, which came out in 1999. Uh, and, you know, before that is I think you have to go back to 1986. You know, this stuff just doesn't happen. Like, so you better be happy and take what you can get and be happy that anybody's showing interest in country and blowing it up to be this level. You know, everybody wants their genre to grow and change and be something different. But then you have these gatekeepers who are holding it uh, and really holding it back because what you're doing is, you know, Lil Nas X opens up a lane for other artists to get in there. And of course, that is not what some of these people who are gatekeeping it at Billboard want to happen. They want to make sure artists look a certain way and, you know, are a certain shade of white to be part of this group. But I mean, you're holding your genre back by doing that. He's opening it up for artists like Rumor, who drops a track called Rascal, who's a very nice kind of trap uh <laughs> trap hip-hop remix he's got this guy named breland who's got a song called my truck which is a very nice country trap um mashup crossover that sounds amazing that i listen to and one of the worst things you're doing is you know lil nas x gets a lot of people who otherwise would not have listened to any country at all getting interest in it and maybe they'll put out some nice country that we never heard you're you're holding your genre back you're really telling a generation of, you know, little black girls and black boys or, you know, Mexican girls, Mexican boys, any of the Caribbean island, anybody who wants to participate who does not look white, that they can't participate. And, 
you're holding us back from. You know, like Lil Nas X got me to listen to some country to scratch a country itch that I've had for a little bit. But I just didn't go into it, but he made me delve into it. And so he has me listening to Breland with my truck rascals, excuse me, arm rumors it's spelled RMR, though. But rumors, rascal um, Dwight Yoakam's honky talk man, Hank Williams, Jr. with family tradition, Marty Robbins, who's my favorite country artist, by the way, gunfighter ballads and trail songs, Johnny Paycheck, um, only hell my mama ever raised. It's a beautiful genre that I hate to see so many people cut off from simply because, you know, you're showing that you don't want us to be there when you uh, cut Lil Nas X from that. And that's sad to see. But, you know, that's the reality of what it is. And you have this black guy who blows this genre up bigger than we've ever seen it blow up before, bigger than we've ever seen any genre kind of blow up before a little bit at least country specifically it's literally the longest charting number one song ever and country's never had that so um hey whatever do with that information as you will but uh those are some of the crossovers that i really wanted to show you this time around you know what i'm saying um and all i can say is thanks for listening if you made it this far, you're the real MVP. Um, and yeah, I really don't have much to say. We are coming up on 20 episodes. This is episode 18, if I'm not mistaken. I have 19 coming out soon. Um, and I have something special for you guys for episode 20. So shout out to you if you have listened to any of these episodes or all of these episodes uh, the love is real. The support is real. And I will see you soon. Peace.